Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, KSO Cottage Grove on KEPW Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Red Bluff, Redding, California, KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but you have me, Angie Quero, today. Instead, I host In Deep with Angie Quero, heard on many of these fine stations and streams. This is the last of my run. Brad and Desi are on their way home to their microphones after a long and lovely holiday. You'll be hearing from them next time around. This is odd. This is one of those odd news days where so much seemed to be happening, but when you dig down, not not really happened. It didn't, really. There was a lot of talk about things happening, but the government is still shut down. And now Trump is saying he's willing to keep it that way for years. For years? Yeah, we're going to get to that one in a few minutes. The Democrats, I must say, made an impressive pitch for H.R. 1 bill that sets out reforms that, if enacted, would send Republicans into shock and panic for life. You know, it does things like making sure votes get counted. <laughs> Treacherous. But, of course, an impressive pitch does not make anything into law. I will break down the contents of the bill to you in just a moment. But first, I was particularly impressed with some of the rhetoric used this morning to introduce the bill. Listen up to the folks who brought it out after Nancy Pelosi made her statement when a lot of the a lot of the cameras had cut away by then. But here you're about to hear from John Sarbanes, Elijah Cummings, Jerry Nadler, and saving the best for last, John Lewis. Last year, when candidates were out campaigning to their constituents, new candidates and candidates were running for re-election, we heard loud and clear from the American people that they feel left out and locked out too often from their own democracy, that they want us to fight the culture of corruption, they want us to clean up Washington, fix the system, and give them their voice back. They want to be able to get to the ballot box without having to run an obstacle course. They want it to be easy, not hard, to register and vote in America. And H.R. 1 will address that concern. They want to make sure that when people come to Washington to serve, whether it's in the legislative branch or the executive branch, or as a member of the judiciary, they behave themselves, they abide by ethics, they have integrity, that they're open and transparent. So H.R. 1 addresses ethical responsibility. And finally, they kept saying to us over and over and over again, don't get tangled up in the money. We don't want special interests and people who write big checks to govern our democracy, to determine what the legislative 
calendar is going to look like. We want the people's priorities to be reflected. So we have to fight back against special interests and big money. And H.R. 1 does that. We carried a message of reform, of fighting corruption, of cleaning up Washington. We made a promise to the American people. The new members who've come made that promise and made it clear they wanted this to be the first order of business. So H.R. 1 is delivering on that promise back to the American people and telling them, in, re in return for you giving us the gavel, we are going to do everything we can every single day to give you your democracy back and make sure that this truly is a government of, by, and for the people. So thank you for being here today. And it's my privilege, someone who's been a fighter for democracy, he talks about fighting for the soul of our democracy every single day, the new chairman of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, Elijah Cummings. Elijah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, John. John, I want to thank you for putting your blood, sweat, and tears in this effort. You have been simply spectacular. I want to thank Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Hoyer, and uh, for your leadership uh, with regard to this historic package. The midterm elections were monumental and indeed historic. The American people gave Congress a mandate to finally start conducting credible oversight and enacting reforms. Over the last two years, President Trump set the tone from the top in his administration that behaving ethically and complying with the law is optional. Ladies and gentlemen, I've stopped by here to simply say we're better than that. We're better than that. It cannot be optional. We have seen gross abuses from agency heads such as former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. This is why we are introducing the For the People Act. This bill includes a number of reforms that will strengthen our accountability for the executive branch officials, including the president. Here is what we are focusing on in our oversight committee, requiring the president to disclose his financial interests as soon as he takes office or she takes office, prohibiting executive branch officials from lobbying their own agencies for two years after they leave, prohibiting procurement officers from going to work for companies they awarded contracts to for at least two years after they leave. Strengthening the government's ethics watchdog, the Office of Government Ethics, and making it more independent. Making any waivers, any waivers from ethics rules available to the American people. Finally, requiring senior government officials to disclose political contributions they received before joining the government. I'm anxiously looking forward to uh, the hearings on H.R. 1, and uh, now it gives me great honor and great privilege to introduce my great colleague and just a, a fighter for all of these kinds of issues, the distinguished uh, chairman, uh, newly minted chairman 
of the uh, Judici Judiciary Committee, uh, Jerry Nadler. Thank you very much. Uh, let me begin by thanking uh, John Sarbanes for his leadership role over a long period of time in pulling together this democracy agenda and gathering support for it. And th the new leadership of the House, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Hoyer, who have been uh, great supporters and ralliers for this kind of agenda for a long time. I am proud to be joining my colleagues today to unveil H.R. 1, legislation to restore our democracy and deliver for the American people. The overwhelming influence of money and special interests is a cancer in our democracy that must be removed. Otherwise, we risk evolving into an oligarchy, like so many other republics before us. Indeed, many Americans already believe that their elected leaders do not care about them, and that office holders care only about raising money and prioritizing the interests of the moneyed class. They believe that their participation, their voices, cannot count against the power of big money, and recent experience shows they are often right. For example, most Americans, including most gun owners, support reasonable firearms regulation. Heartbreakingly, we continue to hear about mass shootings, yet after each tragedy, the Republican-controlled Congress refused to act. Even without such high-profile incidents, it remains true that more than 33,000 Americans lose their lives to gun violence every year, and the gun-related murder rate in the United States is 25 times higher, 25 times higher than in 22 other comparably high-income countries. Despite near-universal support from the American Republic, the Republican Congress did not even have a hearing on the issue, much less pass legislation because of disproportionate political influence of the National Rifle Association and the big givers associated with it. In a similar vein, Americans overwhelmingly support lowering prescription drug prices, yet the pharmaceutical industry and its army of lobbyists have thus far successfully managed to stifle any real reform. Sadly, this, this pattern repeats itself in policy area after policy area, from gutting protections that ensure clean air and clean water to those that ensure the integrity of our financial system. The very real danger now is that special interests will be able to use vast sums of concentrated wealth to further dictate policy outcomes at odds with the American people's wishes. Without H.R. 1, our democracy will find itself more and more at the mercy of large moneyed interests. If we do not pass this critical legislation, the history books may eventually say that like the Roman Republic, the United States had a good 200 to 250 year run at democracy and then degenerated into an oligarchy like all the rest. We must not let that happen. We must pass this legislation so that government of the people remains of the people. And now, I'm proud to introduce one of the people who has perhaps had the greatest role in making sure that government is of, by, and for the people in the last century, our great moral leader and great legislative leader, uh, Representative John Lewis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for those kind words of introduction. Thank you, John, for not giving up, for not giving in, 
for keeping the faith That's right. and keeping your eyes on the prize. The last two years have made it clear there are forces which invest thousands and millions of dollars in drowning out the voice of the people of this country. But in the last election, the people spoke, and they spoke with a mighty voice, and they will continue to speak. They used the power of the vote to create a more diverse, more progressive, and more outspoken house than ever before. Yes. Right. I said on many occasions that the vote is the most powerful, nonviolent instrument of transformation we have in our democracy, we have in a democratic society. And at the foundation of our system, it must be strengthened and preserved. There are forces trying to make it harder and more difficult for people to participate. And we must drown out these That's forces. Right, we must strengthen <coughs> our democracy. Democrats want to put power back in the, into the hearts of the people. That is why we have introduced H.R. Wind. Before the People Act make automatic registration a mandate nationwide, not just in certain states or in certain counties, but nationwide. We must get there, and we will get there as Democrats. We will get there as citizens of this great country. It restores voting rights to felons who pay their debt to society. I truly believe, deep in my heart, and my soul. The way votes were not counted and purged in Georgia and Florida on, tell it, John. and other states yes. changed yes. the outcome yes. of the last election. Yes. That must never happen again never in again. our country. Never. never again. Never again. Never again, John. Never again. We will make it illegal. It also offers federal resources to secure the vote in states and localities around our country. With this bill, it is in keeping with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, where some of us gave a little blood mm. on the bridge. Oh, yeah. We don't want to give any more blood, no, sir. but we have our votes. Yes. And we must use our votes Everyone. as a powerful instrument to change things. With this bill, you demonstrate that this house is for the people, and we will choose the side of fairness, equality, and justice over special interests <coughs> every time. Okay, so what exactly is in H.R. 1? Pages and pages of text, so I'm not going to go into the whole thing for you, but there is a nice breakdown at the very front of the text at democracyreform/sarbaneshouse.gov. Improve access to voting is top of the list. And they've titled that section, Make It Easier, Not Harder to Vote. Among the things, if you dig down into the specifics, it, it's the small stuff that matters. Like, for example, making sure you don't have to put a stamp on your mail-in vote, making sure that everyone has access to mail-in voting. 
Under improving access, they list taking aim at institutional barriers to voting, patchwork and cumbersome registration systems, disenfranchisement, limited voting hours. They address roadblocks to a more participatory democracy, automatic voter registration nationwide. Ensure that individuals who have completed felony sentencing have their full rights restored. Wow, you can just hear the conservatives just dying here. Expand early voting, simplify absentee voting, and modernize the U.S. voting system. H.R. 1 commits Congress to build the record necessary to restore the Voting Rights Act, prohibits voter roll purges like those seen in Ohio, Georgia, and elsewhere. Yes, they called them out and ends partisan gerrymandering to prevent politicians from picking their voters. Not pulling the punches here. H.R. 1 ensures that American elections are decided by American voters without interference by enhancing federal support for voting system security, particularly paper ballots, increasing oversight over election vendors. I can't wait to hear what Brad thinks of all this and requiring the development of a national strategy to protect U.S. democratic institutions. Okay, that's part the first, make it easier, not harder to vote. Then they move on to ending the dominance of big money in politics. Again, these are summaries. The text is extensive. I urge you to read it all, but this is the summary that gives you an idea where it's all going. Guarantee disclosure, shining a light on dark money in politics by upgrading online political ad disclosure and requiring all organizations involved in political activity to disclose their large donors. H.R. 1 breaks the so-called nesting doll sham that allows big money contributors and special interests to hide the true funding of their true source of their political spending. I wonder how they're going to enact that one. Because frankly, every time you say you have to disclose, you can form a little company and disclose the name of the company. I'm hoping that it attacks that directly. H.R. 1 gives political power to everyday Americans, creating a multi-matching system for small donations, allowing American people to exercise their due influence in our politics. They call it a new 21st century system of citizen-owned elections that they promise will break special interest stranglehold on Congress, laying the groundwork for an agenda that serves the American people. H.R. 1 reaffirms that Congress should have the authority to regulate money in politics, pushing back on the wrong-headed, yes, they use the word, wrong-headed Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court. And to strengthen oversight, H.R. 1 ensures there are cops on the campaign fund beat, campaign finance beat, who will enforce the laws on the books. H.R. 1 tightens rules on super PACs and restructures the FEC to break the gridlock and enhance its enforcement mechanisms. Also repeals Mitch McConnell's writers, there they went, they named him, repeals Mitch McConnell's writers that prevent government agencies from requiring common sense disclosure of political spending. Okay, section the third. Ensure political officials work for the public interest by fortifying ethics laws Breaking the influence economy in Washington, increasing accountability by expanding conflict of interest law and divestment requirements, slowing the revolving door, preventing members of Congress from serving on corporate boards, 
and requiring presidents to disclose their tax returns. H.R. 1 gives teeth to federal ethics oversight by overhauling the OGE, Office of Government Ethics, closing loopholes for lobbyists and foreign agents, ensuring watchdogs have sufficient resources to enforce the law, and creating a code of ethics for the Supreme Court. Very interesting. So there you have it. That's the overview. Again, much text to go with this. And again, this is an idea. All this is is an idea until we see if it can be properly passed. We'll see. Something else in the news today, and this has to do with the shutdown. I just really appreciated the way that Chuck Schumer conducted himself on the floor of the Senate as he calmly and methodically ticked off the people who are truly, truly being affected by the shutdown. Very rational, very calm, very thorough. Give him a listen here. Nearly 400,000 federal workers have now been furloughed. Food safety inspectors, vital to our health and safety, are working without pay and with limited resources. American farmers can't get loans from the USDA. Working families trying to buy a home are finding out their FHA loans are on hold. I just heard from a constituent of mine in the capital region near Albany, a fire police dispatcher whose wife is pregnant. They closed on their first house joyously last week, but now their loan is delayed until the government reopens. That story can be repeated over and over again. Our federal courts are running out of money. Our national parks are suffering. We've seen the piles of in these beautiful places. And maybe most ironically of all, as the president's talking about making the border more secure, his shutdown is making it less secure. Border Patrol agents are going without pay. E-Verify is offline. Immigration cases are on hold. New immigration judges are not being hired. So with all the talk that the president has about making the border more secure, the Trump shutdown is making it less secure. And we've provided a way for him to continue to debate this wall issue, but keep the government open. All of this means we should be doing everything we can to bring this Trump shutdown to a swift end. Now, my friend, the Republican leader, quoted me this morning. So let me now quote my friend, the leader. He has said repeatedly, quote, nobody likes a shutdown. Now, Leader McConnell has shown himself to be an adept negotiator during previous shutdowns. Why is he abdicating his responsibility now? Why is Leader McConnell shuffling off to the sidelines, pointing his fingers at everyone else and saying he won't be involved? Probably because he realizes this president, President Trump, is erratic, unreliable, and sometimes even irrational. In some, President Trump is a terrible negotiator. Given the unfortunate traits that reside in our president, I understand Leader McConnell's reluctance to get involved. But in truth, they are all the more reason for him getting involved. America needs Leader McConnell to get involved to, to stop this shutdown. He can't keep ducking this issue. Left to his own devices, President Trump can keep the government shut down for a long time. 
The President needs intervention, and Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans are just the right ones to intervene. Fortunately, and we have a way to end this shutdown with the help of our Republican friends in the Senate. Last night, as expected, the House of Representatives passed two pieces of legislation to end the Trump shutdown, a six-bill six package to provide appropriations for eight shuttered cabinet departments and a 30-day continuing resolution for the Department of Homeland Security. Both bills received bipartisan support in the House. The logic behind these two pieces of legislation is very simple. We have disagreements on how to best secure the border. President Trump wants an, wants an expensive and ineffective border wall. He promised Mexico would pay for it, but now demands American taxpayers should foot the bill. Democrats believe a border wall is an obtuse public policy and that we have much better, more effective, less wasteful ways of securing the border. But we don't have to have eight unrelated cabinet departments closed while we sort out our differences. We can reopen the 25 percent of the government now closed and continue to debate our border security. That's why we split the bills in two, one to reopen the government and another to keep DS running short term while discussions continue about the border. Neither piece of legislation should be controversial. And the House majority, I give them credit, Leader Pelosi credit, went out of its way to avoid controversy. They didn't send over a bill with lots of poison pill riders, lots of things that our colleagues here wouldn't like. They sent the very bills that Republicans crafted and voted for. The majority went out of its way to avoid controversy by choosing the legislation crafted and supported by Republicans. So let me emphasize that. The six appropriations bills passed by the House last night are the same bills, the very same bills, they have not changed a bit, that Republicans here in the Senate drafted, they were in charge, and approved. Four of them passed this chamber by more than 90 votes. The other two passed nearly unanimously in committee. Leader McConnell voted for every one of them and spoke glowingly about their passage last year. So there is nothing, I repeat, nothing in the six appropriation bills that Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans oppose. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, I repeat, about a continuing resolution for Homeland Security that now Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans refuse to put on the floor because those were Leader McConnell, that was Leader McConnell's idea. He put it on the floor. It passed the chamber unanimously last Christmas. So now we're seeing some real cracks in the Republican wall. Some of my friends in the Senate on the other side of the aisle in this body, to their credit, are already saying that we should take up and pass these two bills. Seven House Republicans, newly elected, under huge pressure not to, voted with these bills. Every Democrat voted for the bill. There's no dissension there. 
but a handful of Republicans did too. So it's time for Leader McConnell and President Trump, who is the ultimate reason we have this shutdown. It's time for Leader McConnell and President Trump to support this package of bipartisan legislation and reopen the government. So I say to my Republican friends, don't let President Trump hold hostage all of these fine people who have done nothing wrong themselves. Don't let him use the government shutdown to try and get his way, because that's not how it should work, and that's not what's going to happen. Instead, let's reopen the government, start paying our food safety inspectors, our park rangers, our air traffic controllers, our federal courts, and our border patrol agents so they can do the work they're supposed to do for the American people. All we have to do is take up legislation that Senate Republicans already support. So Trump says that he's willing to let this go on for years. He also says that he is willing to declare the necessity for the wall a national emergency. That is not a pipe dream. Already in the Atlantic, there was a somewhat fascinating, somewhat chilling article on what a national emergency constitutes, on how it can be declared, on all the ways we don't anticipate it could be declared, that we would be surprised by and possibly destroyed as a country by. We're going to get to that on the other side of this break. I'm Angie Cuero. You are listening to the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Coro sitting in for Brad and Desi for this one more day. So Donald Trump says that he's willing to declare a national emergency to get what he wants on the ball on the border wall slash shutdown. He's always been able to willing to do anything he can to get whatever he wants. But now we're talking about major high stakes. It's easy to think that he couldn't pull such a thing. But there's a fine analysis, very methodical very rational analysis of how he could go about this and what the results could be. This is in The Atlantic. The article is called What the President Could Do If He Declares a State of Emergency. And the author is a co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Her name is Elizabeth Godian. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I'm sort of getting by as I can. It's a many-paged article. I'm going to bring you the guts of it here, okay? In the weeks leading up to the 2018 midterm elections, President Donald Trump reached deep into his arsenal to try to deliver votes to Republicans. A few involved the aggressive use and threatened misuse of presidential authority. He sent thousands of active duty soldiers to the southern border to terrorize a distant caravan of desperate Central American migrants announced plans to end the constitutional guarantee of birthright citizenship by executive order and tweeting that law enforcement had been, quote, strongly notified to be on the lookout for, quote, illegal voting, capital letters from Twitter. 
how much further, she asks, might he go in 2020 when his own name is on the ballot, or sooner than that, if he's facing impeachment by a House under Democratic control? She goes on to say that there's a lot more at stake here than the outcome of one or the next or several more elections. Trump, she says, has long signaled his disdain for the concepts of limited presidential power and democratic rule. The moment the president declares a national emergency, a decision that is entirely within his discretion, he's able to set aside many of the legal limits on his authority. Now, here's where she goes into depth on that. Unknown to most Americans, a parallel legal regime allows the president to sidestep many of the constraints that normally apply. The moment the president declares a national emergency, a decision that is entirely within his discretion, more than 100 special provisions become available to him. While many of these tee up reasonable responses to genuine emergencies, some appear dangerously suited to a leader bent on amassing or retaining power. For instance, the president can, with a flick of his pen, activate laws allowing him to shut down many kinds of electronic communications available inside the U.S. or freeze Americans' bank accounts. The president can freeze your bank account because he wants to. Other powers are available even without a declaration of emergency, including laws that allow the president to deploy troops inside the country to subdue domestic unrest. This edifice of extraordinary power, she says, has historically rested on the assumption that the president will act in the country's best interest when using them. But what if a president backed into a corner facing electoral defeat or impeachment were to declare an emergency for the sake of holding on to power. In that scenario, she says, our laws and institutions might not save us from a presidential power grab. They might be what takes us down. And then she goes on to delineate several different areas where, first of all, he can do that, how he can get away with it in specific circumstances, and the potential outcome. Let's go here. Some legal scholars believe that the Constitution gives the president inherent emergency powers by making him commander-in-chief of the armed forces or by vesting in him a broad, undefined executive power. At key points in American history, presidents have cited inherent constitutional powers when taking drastic actions that were not authorized or in some cases were explicitly prohibited by Congress. She goes on to note examples that we're all familiar with. There was Roosevelt's internment of U.S. citizens and the residents of Japanese descent during World War II, George W. Bush with his warrantless wiretapping and the torture after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Abraham Lincoln famously tossed the Constitution away when he unilaterally suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War. He said it was constitutionally questionable, but he defended it anyway. Then she goes to the early 20th century, Back to the article here. When Congress legislated powers that would lie dormant until the president activated them by declaring a national emergency, these statutory authorities, this is, I've never heard of this, these statutory authorities began to pile up, and because presidents had little incentive to terminate states of emergency once declared, these piled up too. By the 1970s, hundreds of statutory emergency powers 
and four clearly obsolete states of emergency were in effect. And she includes examples of during the Korean War, the state of emergency that Truman declared stayed in place so it could be used to help prosecute the war in Vietnam. So they lie there languishing, apparently, until the president wants to use them. Once declared, they sit there. So then she explains, in 1976, Congress passed the National Emergencies Act. That was an attempt to rein in all of this. Under this law, she says, the president still has complete discretion to issue an emergency declaration, but he must specify in the declaration which powers he intends to use, issue public updates if he decides to invoke additional powers, and report to Congress on the government's emergency-related expenditures every six months. And the state of emergency expires after a year unless the president renews it. And the Senate and the House have to meet every six months while it's in effect to consider a vote on termination. Now, that sounds very hopeful, but she says by any objective measure, the law has failed. 30 states of emergency are in effect today. That's more than when the act was passed in 76. Most have been renewed for years on end. And during the 40 years the law has been in place, Congress has not met even once, let alone every six months, to vote on whether to end them. Okay, so here's where the Internet gets tied in. This matters a lot. In 1942, she explains, Congress amended Section 706 of the Communications Act of 1934 to allow the president to shut down or take control of, quote, any facility or station for wire communication upon his proclamation that there exists a state or threat of war involving the United States. Now, at that time, wire communication meant telephone calls or telegrams. Although interpreting a 1942 law to cover the Internet might seem far-fetched, some government officials recently endorsed this reading during debates about cybersecurity. Under this interpretation... Section 706 could effectively function as a kill switch in the U.S., available to the president at the moment he proclaimed a mere threat of war. Then she goes into what we've already seen from Trump that tell us this is not something that's overstated. In August, she points out, in an early morning tweet, Trump lamented that search engines were rigged to serve up negative articles about him, Later that day, the administration said it was looking into regulating big Internet companies. I think, he said on Twitter, Google and Twitter and Facebook, they're really treading on very, very troubled territory, and they have to be careful. She warns that if the government were to take control of the U.S. Internet infrastructure, Trump could accomplish directly what he threatened to do by regulation, ensure that Internet searches always return pro-Trump content as the top result. The government would have the ability to impede domestic access to particular websites. It could monitor emails or prevent them from reaching their destination. It could exert control over computer systems and physical devices that are connected to the Internet. Think about Amazon Echo. A little bit more to this, but let me remind you, this is an article from The Atlantic that is much, much longer than I have time to share with you. But she's painting very methodically this picture of what happens if Trump can, as he is able to do, declare a state of national emergency, which he has now threatened to do. 
She talks about the ability he has to sanction Americans. Next to war power, she says, economic powers might sound benign, but they are among the president's most potent legal weapons. All but two of the emergency declarations in effect today were issued under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. That's called IEPA. Published in 77, the law allows the president to declare a national emergency, quote, to deal with any unusual and extraordinary threat to national security, foreign policy, or the economy that has its source in whole or substantial part outside the United States. Okay, so we're protecting against enemies without, correct? The president can then order a range of economic actions to address the threat, including freezing assets and blocking financial transactions in which any foreign nation or foreign national has an interest. But the government needs, she says, only, quote, a reasonable basis for believing someone is involved with or supports terrorism in order to designate him. Now, here's where it gets really chilling. The target, she says, is generally given no advance notice and no hearing. He may request reconsideration and submit evidence on his behalf, but the government faces no deadline to respond. The evidence against the target is typically classified, which means he is not allowed to see it. He can try to challenge the action in court, but his chances of success are minimal, as most judges defer to the government's assessment of its own evidence. And finally, she talks about the possibility of boots on Main Street. Yes, he can do that. He can deploy troops inside the United States. The idea, she says, of tanks rolling through the streets of U.S. cities seems fundamentally inconsistent with our notions of democracy and freedom. We might be surprised to learn just how readily the president can deploy troops inside the U.S. And she goes into detail on that. And her final section is given over to the president's powers to essentially create an emergency. He can make the emergency that he cares to declare. And I'll bring you a bit of that section, and that's it. But again, if you're just joining me, I'm bringing you bits of the article, what the president could do if he declares a state of emergency. It's out there right now in the Atlantic. So here's that latter part. In the past several decades, Congress has provided what the Constitution did not emergency powers that have the potential for creating emergencies rather than ending them. Presidents have built on these powers with their own secret directives. What has prevented the wholesale abuse of these authorities until now is a baseline commitment to liberal democracy on the part of past presidents. Under a president who doesn't share that commitment, what might we see? And at that point, she paints a truly haunting and hauntingly feasible scenario of how far he could go without violating any of these precepts, all within the law. But then she says, of course, Trump might also choose to act entirely outside the law. Presidents with a far stronger commitment to the rule of law, including Lincoln and Roosevelt, have done exactly that, albeit in response to real emergencies. But there is little that can be done in advance to stop this other than attempting deterrence through robust oversight. The remedies for such behavior can only come after the fact via court judgments, political blowback at the voting booth, or an impeachment. She suggests some reforms, and then she says, Congress, of course, will undertake none of those reforms without extraordinary public pressure. Until now, the public has paid little heed to emergency powers. Well, yeah, I haven't heard half the stuff of you. 
But she says we're in uncharted political territory at a time when other democracies around the world are slipping toward authoritarianism. And when the president seems eager for the United States to follow their example, we would be wise to shore up the guardrails of liberal democracy. Fixing the current system of emergency powers would be a good place to start. I urge you to read that whole article. And because I may be mangling her name, let me spell it for you. It's Elizabeth Gautian, and that is spelled G-O-I-T-E-I-N. I hope I came anywhere near pronouncing it correctly. She's with the Brennan Center for Justice. Very important to check that out. We're going to go back in the next segment to Joe Flower. We brought you part of his conversation yesterday. He's a healthcare futurist. Back in a moment. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero. Yesterday, I brought you part of my conversation with Joe Flower, healthcare futurist, whose many free videos and lots of advice and insight are online at imaginewhatif.com. Here is the latter part of our conversation. Drug companies now spend more, by many different estimates, on marketing than they do on R&D. So when they tell you that they need billions and billions to develop drugs, you also have to add in there and to market them. They used to tell me, maybe 10 years ago, if you said, how, how much does it cost to develop a drug? Used to, the, the industry used to say, well, on average, $15 billion to develop a new drug. Of course, there's no data there because it's all trade secrets. Mm-hmm. In 2014, there is an industry organization actually called Pharma. And they commissioned Tufts University to actually do a study. And they gave them a lot of de- inside data from companies. And uh, how much does it cost to develop? Well, okay, it's not $15 billion. It's $2.5 billion. <laughs> At the time, the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, one of the world's largest drug company, said, that was hogwash. That was tough. He said, eh, not more than $1 billion. Okay. Medicine Sans Frontieres. Doctors Without Borders, right. they actually do develop drugs. And they actually pay some drug companies to develop them for the markets where they need to bring them in at a very low price. And they were like, no, we have experience in this and we will be transparent about it. It costs about $50 million to develop a new drug. If you want to count all the blind alleys you go down, $186 million. Wow. No, and they say when. So you're saying pharmaceutical companies lied? I'm just checking. Well, <laughs> what I'm saying is it's a lot like Hollywood accounting, <laughs> where you can have a huge blockbuster and not end up with any profit at all because you'd have to share that out with the actors and right, such. Right, right. So we do not have access to the actual books and what costs they're attributing to which drugs. You bring up the CEO 
sometimes polarities are just easier to buy than the gray areas. In fact, they're always easier to buy than the gray areas. And one of the great contradictions we've always <laughs> seen is the people being denied health care and dying. And then you have a CEO who's living on a 40-acre compound and 14 swimming pools. And da, da, da. How much does the hyper pay of the heads of these companies really figure into the cost? Is it fair to say, look, this is deeply unjust? Or is that just nice and black and white and we can focus on it and say, well, there's the problem? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's vivid is what it is. Uh, let me get rid of two misconceptions. A lot of people, all the time, easy. Facebook memes about this and Reddit conversations uh, are about there should be no profit in healthcare, and the, the profit in healthcare is why it's so expensive. Uh, if you look at organizations that are not for profit and those that are for profit, and you see, you know, what uh, are they charging too much? Is, there is no bright line between the for profit and not for profit. Hmm. It's not like the for profits actually take much more money out of the system than the not-for-profits. And it's true also that everybody in the business is making a living. So, I mean, is a doctor uh, for-profit? Well, he or she is getting a salary at least. Right. So the question is really how are we paying for and what are we paying for? And on this question of salaries, uh, when it comes to uh, the not-for-profits, you know, the, the last time I looked, the head of Blue Cross of New Jersey, a not-for-profit, got $10 million a year in salary. Uh, and some of the highest salaries paid in healthcare and the provider side are like, you know, the heads of Baylor uh, and uh, New York Presbyterian and uh, NYU Langone. And uh, the, the people at the top of these actually make uh, salaries often in the tens of millions of dollars. Now, does this actually add to the cost of healthcare? Mm, yes, but probably it's, it's not the reason why things cost so much. On the insurance side, the profit thing is even is actually kind of been taken care of by Obamacare, mm -hmm. which people may have forgotten, but there is a thing called medical loss ratio, MLR. That is how much, if I give you as an insurance company, uh, you know, thousands of dollars, how much of that do you have to pay out for actual medical care? Well, Obamacare codified that. It said you have to pay out 80% for the small plans, 85% for the big plans, has to go out the door in medical care. If you don't, you're going to have to give it back. And this, so they get 20, 15 to 20% to take care of all their administrative expenses, all their advertising, and these executive salaries, and if they're for-profit, any dividends to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And there have been many, many uh, insurers that have had great difficulty, especially when Obamacare first rolled out and as the Republicans began to chip away at it. But as a whole, the insurance, the health insurance industry has done well and is doing better now than it ever has been. So... It's hard to say. It's the whole structure of healthcare that causes it to cost so much. And you're going to have some of these executive salaries in there that are big. If they gave their entire executive salary back into the system and, you know, did it for a dollar a year, I don't think that would change the actual cost no. to the consumer that, mm -hmm. you know, that you could notice. One of the things that the companies, 
Yes. It's just sad. <laughs> well, it is sad, and I, I, I kind of have to wonder, one of, our, our, one of our audience questions goes to solutions. Democrats are split between progressives who advocate for, for Medicare for all and moderates who believe we should tweak and extend Obamacare. And let me throw into that pile, we've got an alleged president who wants to get rid of <laughs> Obamacare. And I think he's talking to people who don't fully understand what Obamacare has done for right. us. It's, it's very interesting on the Republican side. For the first time since Obama became president, which is 10 years ago, for the first time, uh, have, being against Obamacare is actually a mixed bag, ah. and you find many uh, you, f you find many of these um, Republican candidates who are like trying to revise their 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 Facebook history and their website and such, <laughs> so to to try to walk away from the very fierce opposition to Obamacare because people now, by and large, understand. Uh, that Obamacare has been helpful, has gotten many more people covered, and especially uh, the thing about pre-existing conditions where uh, a major part of Obamacare was uh, the, the insurance companies can't refuse to insure you because you have some pre-existing condition. You know what? The majority of Americans have a pre-existing condition. Yes. And most people might be thinking, well, especially people who maybe your young people didn't experience the old way of doing things. They might be thinking, well, you know, I don't have MS or cancer or something like that. No, no, no. Uh, asthma, uh, a hangnail, a diabetes, uh, a back problem. You, you went to the doctor for anything at any point that was a problem. The insurance companies might well say, oh, well, we can't insure you. You had that or, when you got here. <laughs> or even, yeah, even worse, they might say, oh, you had a, you had a, you had a heart attack, oh my gosh! It's a half million dollar bill. But let's look back through your your history. Uh, gee, we find that on your on your uh, application, you said you did not have a heart condition, but you know what? Ten years before that, you went to the emergency room because you were having atrial fibrillation, and now they said that you didn't have a heart condition, but you did go to the emergency room. We did have a problem, so you lied on your form. So guess what? That half million dollars you just incurred, it's on you, and you are no longer our customer. That is called rescission, and those are things that they are trying very hard to get rid of mm -hmm. uh, right now. So, yeah, that's on the Republican side. And they're having difficulty defending their past opposition to Obamacare and their current uh, uh, opposition. They're just trying to obfuscate it. They're turning the conversation more to Medicare, claiming that anybody who, who f f even flirts with the idea of uh, Medicare for all or any kind of single-payer system, mm. is uh, it, they're trying to take away your Medicare. Right. Which is just hogwash. There's nothing in any of these that would suggest that extending Medicare would mean taking it away from the people who already have it. They're just making that up. Well, in the beginning of the hour, I talked to you about the, the, the three things that we really need to deal with, the three big fixes we would have to have. And it sounds to me like we've made stabs in the direction of taking care of long-term medicine. We've taken a stab in getting everybody covered, and we've taken a stab at, you know, getting rid of a little bit, a little bit, the fee-for-service, although that's pretty much entrenched. All of those could fall prey to the same thing that Medicare for All has fallen to, 
which is messaging, political messaging, that obscures the picture. And I'm wondering how many potential solutions would need to go through some kind of sales filter, some well, kind it's, of... Uh, it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. Uh, all the time, you know, I, I go on Quora, I go on Reddit, uh, I go on Facebook, and, you know, and I talk about these things in pretty much every conversation. There's at least one person who basically dismisses any of these things because they are, quote-unquote, socialist. Socialist, I knew it. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not even sure what that means, much less if they have any clear idea what that means. It seems to mean for many people anything the government does for you. Uh, you know, like, uh, okay, we got we got stoplights. Is that socialist? <laughs> I don't know. We got sidewalks. Uh, I don't know. Is this, you know, our, our ports, our airports, our uh, interstate highway system? Our, uh, there are all kinds of things that we depend on government to provide for us because they are part of the national infrastructure. They undergird the entire economy and they take care of our people like it says in the Constitution, in the preamble of the Constitution, it is about the benefit to the people of this country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can look it up. It's actually there. <laughs> the, the government is supposedly dedicated to helping everybody in some way or other. But the Medicare for all thing, Bernie's thing, uh, Bernie has somewhat shot himself in the foot that way. Because it is true that Medicare for All, as put in Bernie's bill, I mean, he actually has a whole bill, is it's not really extending what we now know as Medicare to everybody. What's the difference? Two things. It pays for everything. That is, it pays for your dental, pays for vision, pays for you know, all these other things that are outside of what we would consider medical care which, you know, those are problems that need to be taken care of, but that's one way it's different from Medicare. And the other way is that the, uh, the patient, the person being provided for, pays nothing for anything ever. So that drives up the utilization. It drives up the cost. There's no provision there to pay differently to get off the, the fee-for-service system or anything like that that would drive costs down. And that's Joe Flower. You can find his work online at imaginewhatif.com. You can find our whole conversation at indeepradio.com slash broadcasts. Thank you for indulging my reporting and various other bits of conversation here on the broadcast. Brad and Desi are on their way home. They'll be back on the air next time around. Until you hear their voices, good luck, world. Good luck, world.